last week we, we launched a series called Defining Moments. And uh, we're saying a defining moment is uh, when we are confronted by a truth that challenges us to make a decision, a decision that will dramatically impact and influence our lives. As you look back over your life, maybe you, you look back and, and there have been definite defining moments, some good and some bad. You look back and go, oh, if only I had listened to so-and-so, things would have gone better. I'm, well, I'm so glad I listened to so-and-so because now I'm in this particular place that I'm in. And so what we're going to be doing in this series is, is jumping around the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just having a look at some of the interactions Jesus has with certain individuals or certain groups of people. And each time, he confronts them with a particular truth that would prove to be a defining moment in their lives. Either way, they choose to take that truth. Last week, Jesus confronted a group of Jews who appeared at first to believe in him until he confronted them with the truth that to be a true disciple meant to abide in his word so that they would know his truth and that truth would set them free. But unfortunately, they took offense to being called not free or slaves, slaves to sin, and they rejected the truth, which still proved to be a defining moment in their lives. And so the truth we're going to see today is that Jesus is our hope in times of tragedy, or hard times. Now, I debated, you know, this is like my third official sermon. Do I go with such a hard topic or such a heavy topic? And so I spoke with Jay, my wife, and, and we were saying, you know what? We all experience tragedies. We've all maybe experienced tragedies in the past or, or tough times. Most likely, we will experience tough times and, and tragedies in the future. And, he, and here's the thing, whether we're Christians here or, or not Christians, and, and if you're here and you're not quite a Christian, you're still deciding this whole Christian thing, really, really good to have you here. I'm so glad you're going to hear this. Because the first thing that we do, whether we're Christians or not Christians, in a tough time or in a tragedy, is we look for hope. We look to place our hope in something or someone to comfort us or to get us out of the situation that we're in. When uh, Janine and I got married almost 13 years ago, we decided that um, before we had children, that we would first buy some pot plants. And if the pot plants survived, that meant that we could then move on to the next stage and buy some dogs. And if the dogs survived, that meant that we were really matured and we were responsible enough and that we could then try for children. And so we went out and we bought some pot plants, which died. Um, and so clearly they were faulty plants. So then we went ahead and we bought some dogs. And uh, to our surprise, they were surviving. And in fact, they were thriving. And so we thought, well, clearly we, we've arrived. We're, we were responsible. And so we got all excited about starting a family, becoming a mom and a dad. And then I remember one morning waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning with the screaming and the shouting coming from the bathroom. And I was a bit dazed and a bit confused, sat bolt right up in bed, but then realized that it was screaming and shouting for joy. And it was Janine who was in the bathroom who had taken a pregnancy test that confirmed that we were pregnant. And so we were over the moon. I mean, we told everyone. We told the petrol attendant. We, we told the guys in the supermarket. It was just amazing. We were so excited. And as the pregnancy developed, we, we found out that she was going to be a girl. And so we picked out her name. We picked out Taylor as her name. And so we were super excited. But then 
when we went for our 16-week appointment, our 16-week scan, we noticed the face on our doctor just dropped. Her countenance dropped and her eyes were filled with dread as she delivered the news that Taylor had a condition called triploidy. And triploidy means that she had an extra set of chromosomes other than the usual two that we all have. And she said in most cases this condition is terminal and that she most likely wouldn't survive the pregnancy or the birth. And so this was just devastating news, as you can imagine. We were crushed in the moment. All of our hopes, all of our dreams just absolutely smashed. And so our doctor recommended that we terminate, but she respected our, our Christian views, our Christian values. And so we, we wrestled with this. You know, there were, there were possibly even complications for, for Janine. And, but, so we were just wrestling. There's this tug of war in our hearts and in our minds as, as to what to do. And about a month later, Jay just had this, she woke up one morning and she just had this feeling that Taylor's heart had stopped. So we went off to the hospital, we had another scan, and it confirmed that her heart had stopped. And then she had to be rushed in for surgery, which was a traumatic experience on its own. You know, and I'd love to stand here before all of you and say, you know what, we were the perfect Christian couple. We hoped in God perfectly. Our faith was not shaken. But in all honesty, it revealed certain questions, certain confusions, like Jesus, why? Jesus, why did this happen? Jesus, where, where were you? Jesus, aren't you powerful enough to have done something? Were, were you so far removed, Jesus, sitting on your throne that you didn't know what was going on? And I'm sure judging by how many people are sitting in this room that Maybe many of you have experienced the same thing or a similar thing, or you know someone who has experienced it, experienced the heartbreak, the trauma, the disappointment. Maybe for others of us, it's something slightly different. Maybe the death of a loved one, a parent, a grandparent, a brother, a sister, a close friend. Maybe you were here on island and you so desperately wanted to get there. You wanted to get there in time, but you just couldn't get there. You couldn't get there at all, and so your hope in God turned to anger towards him, to questioning him. Or maybe it's not a death, maybe it's an illness of some sort, an illness of a loved one that they just have to live with, or you have an illness that you have to live with, or maybe it's a financial crisis, maybe it's a relationship crisis, and then all the questions come. Jesus, why? Why am I going through this? Jesus, where are you? Jesus, can't you do something about this? And so fortunately for us, we're not the only ones to go through tough times in our lives. But many people in the Bible went through some incredibly tough times. And they, they hoped in Jesus, but they also had some very hard questions to ask of Jesus. And so in our defining moment today, we're going to be looking at a story. We're going to, we're going to split it over two Sundays, today and next Sunday. So just a little disclaimer, if you walk out of here a little bit confused, it's because the story's not finished. You've got to come back next week so we can finish it all off. Um, but Jesus, in the story, offers a family going through a very traumatic experience. He offers them hope. And the truth that he offers, the truth that he brings, offers them hope not only for their temporal situation, but most importantly, our eternal hope. And so the truth that we're going to see today is this. Jesus uses tragedies to reveal his glory. 
a truth that I trust and I pray leads to some defining moments in our lives, a defining realization that brings us hope, all of us hope, in the tough things that we go through in life. So here we go. We can hope in Jesus because he uses tragedies for his glory. Now, defining God's glory is near on impossible because we are finite beings, we have a finite understanding, we have a finite experience of things in contrast to God who is infinite, right? So it's kind of like trying to define the concept of beauty and soccer, right? Soccer is easy to explain. You have two, two teams, 11 guys on each team, and they have one ball, they have to kick it, they can't hold it, they have to kick it, and these guys have to score a goal there, these guys have to score a goal there, end of the game, whoever has the most goals boom, is the winner, right? And so if you're flicking through the channels and you come across basketball, you go, well, that clearly that's not soccer because they're using their hands. But now when it comes to beauty, it's quite difficult because it's more a case of seeing something or experiencing something and you attach the word beauty to that thing, right? Or you go, wow, that, that, that's over there, that's beautiful, or that's beautiful, or that thing that we went through, that was amazing, that was beautiful. And so eventually the person gets the idea of the concept of beauty by what they're seeing or what they're experiencing. And so it's the same with God's glory. If we see it enough, if we see enough aspects of His glory, we get an idea of how glorious He is. And the Bible helps us out with this. Look at Psalm 19 verse 1 before we launch into our story. The psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God... And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so we can summarize what he's saying and saying that the psalmist is saying God's creativity is an aspect of his glory. It's declaring an aspect of his glory. And so as we look at it, we glory in the gloriousness of his creativity. Or another example, God's mercy on sinners reveals his glory. So as you and I, as we experience His grace, as we experience His mercy, we glory in the gloriness of His mercy. And so glory, we can say God's glory is the sum total of His perfect attributes, the sum total of His perfect characteristics. And when He reveals them, or when He reveals one of them, we can't help but glory in it and give Him the glory. And so what I'm arguing for here is that God is going to reveal an aspect of His glory in our trials and our tragedies so that we will glorify Him in it. Now, if that doesn't make sense at all, don't worry. Because like I said, we're only going to look at half of the story or the first part of the story. Hopefully, by the end of the sermon or next sermon, it'll make sense. But for right now, I need you to know that our tragedies and our sufferings that we go through in this world serve a divine purpose. Unfortunately, I can't tell you the specific reasons or the specific purposes for your particular tragedies that you go through. Neither can the Bible tell you specifically because, A, it's only this thick. But what the Bible definitely does tell us is that there's nothing random and there's nothing arbitrary about the things we go through. They serve a divine purpose of seeing and savoring God's glory. So here we go. Won't you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. You can go ahead and grab a Bible in front of you um, or click on it if you have your a Bible app or if you have neither, you, 
welcome to follow on the screen with us. John chapter 11, from verse 1. We're just going to look at the first six verses of this story, and then we'll tackle the rest. But I really do want you to follow along. I want you to see it in the Bible for yourself. Don't take my word for it. I want you to see it in His word. Here we go. John chapter 11, from verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So what John does here is he first establishes the fact that there's a very precious relationship between Jesus and this little family. He tells us that Mary anointed Jesus' feet with this ointment and and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, the crazy thing about that is that that incident hasn't happened yet. If you follow John's chronological order of his book, that happens in chapter 12. But he just sneaks it in here just to emphasize the fact that there is a very unique relationship here. And little did Mary know that this was a, a type of preparation for Jesus, for for the trauma that he was about to go through, his own torture and death on the cross. She was, in a sense, preparing his body for for death. And we often know, and we know from from the Gospels that Jesus would often stay with his family in their house. You might remember the story when Martha got into trouble for serving uh, instead of sitting at Jesus' feet like Mary was listening to him teach. And, and we kind of feel sorry for her because, you know, she, was, she just had the gift of hospitality. She just wanted to make Jesus feel comfortable after a long journey on his feet. She wanted to make sure he was, his thirst was quenched or his tummy was full or he had a comfortable place to sleep that night. We don't know too much about Lazarus, and and most scholars say the reason for that is probably because he was the youngest member of the family. But what we definitely do know about him is that he was loved by his sisters. I imagine his sisters were kind of like, uh, you know, were all over him, making sure he was okay. Uh, And Jesus clearly loved him. Verse 3 says, He whom you love is ill. Now, the word for love here in verse 3 in the original Greek refers to a brotherly love a brotherly affection. And so from their viewpoint, from the sisters' viewpoint, they supposed that Jesus loved Lazarus with a brotherly affection. But if you have a look at verse 5, it tells us that they were thinking way too small of Jesus' love. Verse 5 says, now Jesus, from Jesus' perspective right now, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now John, who wrote this down, he's divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so he tells us truly about Jesus' love here for this family because the word for love here in verse 5 is the word agape. And that's God's love. Have a look how one scholar defines agape love. He says it like this. This type of love that characterizes God is not a sappy, sentimental feeling such as we often hear portrayed. God loves because that is his nature and the expression of his being. He loves the unlovable and the unlovely, not because we deserve to be loved or because of any excellence we possess, 
but because it is his nature to love and he must be true to his nature. And then he says this, agape love is always shown by what it does. Okay, that's key. So what John has done is going into great detail to emphasize the fact that there is a very special relationship here. A very special relationship between Jesus and this family. And we can say the same is true of us. Jesus has a very special, intimate relationship with us. How do we know that? Jesus loves us with agape love, which according to this definition is shown by what it does. And so the ultimate act of agape love that Jesus showed was dying on the cross for our sins in our place. So sunrise, when we start going through our tough times, and we're experiencing suffering, illness, or tragedies, and we begin to doubt the love of Jesus for us, we begin to doubt where he is, does he even care, and our hope in him begins to weaken, we look to the cross. Or we meditate on scriptures like this. Look at this, Romans 5 verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see the contrast in love there? Paul is saying, hey, hey, listen, we, we might be tempted to take a bullet for someone, a good person. We might be tempted to take a, a bullet for a good person or a righteous person, maybe, maybe. What, why is there a maybe? Because our love has conditions to it. Our love has T's and C's, terms and conditions or stipulations. I'm not just going to give my life up for some riffraff. I need to know that this person is a good person, that he deserves for me to take a bullet. Now look at this. Look at who we were before God. Paul says we are described as, as weak, that is unable to save ourselves because of our sin. He says we were ungodly. What does that mean? Meaning we're so not like God. God is godly. We're ungod, right? Then he goes on and says, he says, while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, because that is our core spiritual makeup, what does God then go and do? Verse 8, he shows his love. This agape love. It's demonstrative, this unconditional, undeserving love because Jesus goes and dies for us. So if we're in our time of trauma, a time of suffering, and we begin to doubt the love of Jesus, we are confronted by an undeniable truth that Jesus loves us so much. He loves you so much that he died on the cross for you even though we did not deserve it. We cling to the cross because it demonstrates Jesus' love for us. So back to our story. John establishes the fact now that Jesus has a relationship with his family. He loves this family with agape love. Now he tells us the reason for this illness. Have a look at verse four again. He says, 
But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, his definition of death, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, you know, we, we can think of many reasons and purposes for the illnesses and the things that we go through in life. In fact, the disciples in, in, in chapter 9 of John, when they come across a, a blind man born blind, they say to Jesus, hey Jesus, why was this guy born blind? Is it, was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus usually, as usual, gives an unusual answer. He says, neither. It is to display the works of God through it. And so in the same way, we need to be clear on what he's saying. Yeah, this illness, he says, is going to display, like the blind man, is going to display or make much of the glory of God the Father and Jesus. Or we can say, Jesus is going to look incredibly glorious through this illness. Now, what I'm going to say is, is it's going to sound very irreverent, but I'm just going to say what some of us might be thinking. And if I was standing next to Jesus there, and if I was brave enough, I'd say, Jesus, let me just give you advice. I know you, I know you God, but let me just give you advice. Let's try not make the situation all about you and your glory because, Jesus, because Lazarus is busy dying on his bed. He's in pain. He's in suffering. His sisters are panic-stricken about their brother. So let's not make this about you and more about him. And besides, what about that whole agape love thing, showing your love, demonstrating your love? Or if you were a movie director in this moment, what would you have Jesus do, right? You, you make him drop whatever he's doing. He jumps onto this white stallion that just happens to be there, and he races across the Judean plain. Most scholars say he was on the other side of the Jordan River. And so he gets to the Jordan River. The ferry that takes you across is just left. And so he jumps with his faithful steed onto the ferry. Everyone claps, amazing. Gets to the other side, ramps off, runs, gallops across the plain, the sun is setting, Lazarus is about to breathe his last breath in Bethany, he gets, breaks through the door, heals him. What a glorious moment. Lazarus and Mary and Martha are praising him, glorifying him, a magnificent, defining, neat Hollywood moment. Right? Have a look at verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And I'm thinking, whoa, is that, is that a disconnect for you? Because here's a man that Jesus loves with agape love. He loves his sisters with agape love. So, he willingly and purposely allows Lazarus to suffer for two more days. He willingly and purposely allows his sisters to be panic-stricken for two more days. In fact, I imagine them you know, taking turns, one staying at, at Lazarus' bedside while the other one runs to the front door to, to look down the dusty road to see if Jesus is coming, and he, he just doesn't come. So how is this agape love? Jesus, how is this glorifying you? How is this responding to the hope that they've so clearly placed in you? See, here's what we need to do for the rest of our time together. We need to see the connection between Jesus' glory, Jesus' love for us in our times of tragedy. And so it goes back to how and why we were originally created by God. 
Genesis clearly tells us, we were created in his image and likeness to reflect his glory or for his glory. Therefore, we find our greatest joy and satisfaction in life when we see and savor that glory. So listen to me. If suffering leads us to see and savor the glory of God, then allowing us to suffer is the most loving thing he can do. It's a big statement. If we were designed to find full satisfaction in the glory of God, and suffering will get us to that point to see and savor the glory of God, then that's the most loving thing Jesus can do. Like um, teaching my youngest daughter to ride a bicycle without trainer wheels. And you know, pushing her along, letting her go, fall down, she gets hurt, she cries. But I know that if we could just get through the suffering, my back breaking and all that kind of stuff, I know she will glory in riding on her own. Another illustration, um, there's a beautiful forest area in South Africa called uh, Hogsback. Uh, it's a very mountainous area. Uh, the mountains are shaped like Hogsback. That's what it's called, the Hogsback. And uh, these mountains are just covered in forest. In fact, if you're in the forest, sometimes the canopy is so thick that you can barely see the sky or you can barely see the sun. And, and so when Jay and I were, were young and fit, before we had our two girls, we would uh, go up there for a weekend and we would wake up on the Saturday morning, we'd put our tackies on and we'd go for these incredible trail runs through the, through the trails and they, they lead you from one waterfall to the next one. You dive in and you get all fresh and you, you run again to the next one. And uh, after a long morning of running, we were really getting tired and the water was getting less and less. We, we came across a sign that pointed us to another waterfall. We'd never heard about it, never been there. So it was a little bit risky, but we thought, uh, we, we thought oh, let's just let's go for it. Let's go and see what this new waterfalls, uh, waterfall is all uh, about and what it's like. And so off we went, and uh, soon our running was replaced by, by climbing, like climbing up a mountain over big boulders, slippery boulders, loose rocks. And sometimes we would fall, and we would fall quite a distance back again, and we'd get all bruised and cut and battered. But we'd keep going, because every now and again on the rocks was, this, was painted a little arrow just pointing up. Just kind of like teasing you, hey, you're almost there, but not, just keep going. And so we would, we'd just climb and climb and climb, and then we started uh, getting bitten by all these weird insects, insects I've never seen in my life before, and, and, and these bites started swelling up, and our, our cuts started oozing, and, and the tree canopy started thinning out, so the sun was bearing down on us, and, but we just kept going, kept climbing so hard that I eventually got to the point where I was like, oof, if something happens, there is no one around. No one can help us. And so I was saying to Jay, um, you know, trying not to chicken out, but I was trying to say, hey, Jay, hey, maybe, maybe we, should, we should go back down. And then we would see another little arrow saying, hey, just keep going. And so we did. We were dehydrating and, and we were being bitten and all sorts of things. And then eventually we heard this sound of rushing water. And we looked up and instead of seeing an arrow pointing up, it was pointing sideways. So we climbed over this last boulder it led us out onto this clearing, this ledge. And down below us, we, we stepped almost to the edge of the ledge. Well, Jay did, I was too scared. And, and it was like the whole world was before us. 
this incredible, incredible view. The crazy thing is, I looked down and there was an eagle soaring down there. And usually, you know, when we look up, we, we look up and we, we see a bird of prey soaring way up there in, in the wind currents. And I was thinking, we are above an eagle soaring in the wind currents. That's how high we were. And then this fresh mountain breeze blowing this water on us, this rushing wall of water falling down next to us, deep down in this valley. And in that moment, everything that we had gone through, the swelling bites, oozing cuts, bruised and broken, dehydrated, everything was made worthwhile in that moment. Taking in that glorious sight, never seen something like it, never experienced anything like that. That made it all worthwhile. And that helps me to see how our suffering, God's glory, God's love, and our joy all come together. Going through the pain and the suffering that we do in our tragedies is made worthwhile when God reveals His glory. And so He may reveal it, Sometime during your tragedy, maybe a couple of days, months, years later. But when he does something, when he reveals an aspect of his glory, it is the most breathtaking thing. It, everything is made worthwhile. He may only reveal his glory at the end of the age. When he returns to us, to come for us in his Glory, making every single hardship and suffering that we will go through in this life, making everything worthwhile because we were designed ultimately to find our full joy and satisfaction in His glory. And He reveals His glory, and that is the most loving thing He can do. Because I don't want to be insensitive here. I know. Maybe many of you have been staring up at the ceiling, crying out to God, going, Jesus, why? Why is this happening? Jesus, can't you do anything? Or you've been waiting for that phone call and you're praying that it's good news and it's not good news. I need you to know that in that moment, Jesus is up to something for his glory. And when he reveals it, it will be the most satisfying thing for your heart. Bring you healing, bring you closure, bring you comfort. And so my prayer is that we would be a church that strives in the grace that Jesus gives us to see and to savor the glory of God, especially in our trials and our tragedies. Now, I know many of you might be thinking, well, Jason, that's, that sounds all good, but down here in real life world, how? How do we do that? How do we see and savor the glory of God? Well, I've got some help from John Piper here. So imagine this. If you wanted to grow in your love for the glory of cricket or baseball or basketball, whatever it might be, what, what would you do? You would, you would go to a game, right? Or you take someone with you who, who knows the game and so he, he or she can explain the game to you. Or you go and talk to a player after the game and you ask them, what is it like playing this glorious game so that it becomes so glorious to you that you can sit through the unbearable heat and enjoy the game. Or if sport's not your thing, how do you grow in your love for the glory of classical music? Well, you begin to listen to it. You read up about it. You read about all the great composers and, and everything that goes into to making a masterpiece, a great 
composition of classical music. Or if you want to grow in your love for the glory of the stars and the planets, you buy a telescope and you watch all the Star Wars movies. And then John Piper says this. Look at this. He says, if you want to increase your love for the glory of God above all other glories, then you'll study God. Spend time with lovers and knowers of God, the church. You will listen to God. You'll look at God. And you'll gaze and gaze and gaze at the revelation of God. And we're thinking, well, that sounds great, but practically, what does that mean? He says, especially in his word and most pointedly in the face of Jesus Christ, his son. That is seeking Jesus through his word and in prayer. The more we seek Jesus in his word and through prayer, we will begin to see how glorious he is. We'll begin to see and savor how glorious he is. And that begins to sustain us in all the things that we go through. Listen, the story of Lazarus is not just another Bible story for Janine and I. By God's providence, I was listening to a sermon on it at the time we lost Taylor. And I remember having a very raw and a very real conversation with Jesus afterwards. And I said, okay, fine. How now? How are you going to be glorified in this tragedy? And how is your glory going to fill us with joy? So I can't really remember all the, how it all panned out exactly. But one morning, Jay was having her own personal devotional time with the Lord, and I was having mine uh, with the Lord somewhere else. And I can't remember if he gave us the psalm, the same psalm at the same time, or the same psalm different, at different times. But he gave us the same psalm, Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3. And he did Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3 in our hearts. It says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me, and heard my cry. And that's all we could do for months, was cry and cry out to him. And he heard. Sunrise, if there's nothing else you take away from this sermon, take that home with you. He hears your cries. He inclines his ear to you. Because he then did this, verse two. He drew me up, he drew us up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. I can't explain how he did that exactly. That was a, a deep inner spiritual work of the Lord. He did that spiritually in, our, in us. And we were down deep in this miry bog, in our sadness, in our depression, this dark place. And then he did it. We couldn't get out. And then he replaced it, verse three, look at this, he says, he put a new song in my mouth, in our mouths, a song of praise to our God. And it's, this is how I understood how his glory, how his love and our joy and our healing comes together. Only he could do that for us, not ourselves. And so we glorified him in that. Seeing what he did for us, we glorified, filled, and it filled us with joy. And then the ultimate result, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This was crazy. Many people who had experienced the same thing or a similar thing were either referred to us or, or just miraculously put on our path that we could then encourage them. We could then point them to Jesus so that they would put their trust in Jesus so that they would see the glory of Jesus 
through what they had been through and feel his love and experience that joy so that their tragedy would become a defining moment, a defining moment of seeing the glory of God resulting in joy and peace. So sunrise, we can hope We can hope in times of suffering and tragedy if we realize and cling to the truth and know that Jesus is using it for his glory. And when he reveals that glory, it is the most loving thing that he can do because it results in inexpressible joy for us. So can you imagine Can you imagine getting such a vision and a passion for his glory that it sustains us through all the hardships that we go through in this life? Cling to this truth. This is our defining moment truth that Jesus uses our tragedies for his glory. It's the most loving thing he can do because it fills us with joy and peace. Amen. Why don't you pray with me? Music guys can get ready. Heavenly Father, I ask please that you would do this, that you would help us see, that you'd help this faith family begin to see more and more and to savor more and more how glorious you are that you use miraculously in your sovereign power and ability that you use all things for your glory which always results in our good, our joy, our peace, our healing, our comfort. I pray especially for those in this room who are going through a really tough time right now or maybe in the past they've gone through some really traumatic things and and tragic things, would you confront them with this amazing truth that you use all things for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name.